This is Ukraine It Now podcast. My name is Andriy Chamas, and uh, today our guest is Bill Pollan. Hi, Bill. Hey, Andriy. Great to see you and talk to you. You're looking very good today. <laughs> uh, I think like today we can talk more about you and more about your support because Bill is um, a great supporter of Ukraine and Bill is involved in so many different activities and uh, projects that are supporting Ukraine. For example, I met Bill when he came to Lviv. I think it was last October, like October 2022, when we were opening Mental Health Center together with Just Answer. By that time, I already knew that Bill helped a lot by providing some supplies for people in Easter part of Ukraine by supplying different uh, tactical things for our military. And so, first of all, before we begin with all these details, my question is, Bill, why Ukraine? Why are you supporting Ukraine financially and mentally and uh, emotionally? Well, it's I, I don't know where the curiosity started, but it started uh, many years ago where I'd read enough about people that had their families had come from, let's say, Odessa or Kiev, and some of those people have become, you know, brilliant scientists or medical doctors, etc. I was enthralled with uh, the idea of going, particularly those two two cities, and had set up actually for part of a, a family vacation with my wife in August of 2021. So the idea was to fly to Odessa to start the trip, spend three days there and then four days in Kiev, and then get back to Italy where my wife and I were going to take a, a backroads biking trip in the Dolomites. And that trip was planned for the middle of August in 2021. A week before we were to depart, there was a massive COVID outbreak in Ukraine that stopped all travel in and out. So I thought, well, I'll, get, I'll do that next year. I'll get to it next year to do that same plan. And then, of course, this, the war started on February 24th of 2022. And since then, I've been kind of riveted with um, and learned a hell of a lot more about the, the character of the Ukrainian people as things have unfolded. Had gone to Stanford Business School, and one of my good friends, who uh, I see all the time, has stayed very close to a number of the European members of our class. There were there was 300 in each class, and, and there were probably 10 Europeans out of our class. My friend stayed very close touch with him because he spoke several different languages. And I was telling him how irate I was about the, the war breaking out and what Putin was doing. And he put me in touch. We had a Zoom call with a classmate named Rulof Quintus, who's Dutch, and happens to have a business in Geneva where he has many Polish employees. And almost from the start of the war, uh, all of his employees wanted to volunteer their time and vehicles to get supplies to Ukraine. So I said, well, I'm on board with that, and then started talking to some of my friends. And what, was, what started out was just uh, kind of humanitarian aid, uh, blankets and pillows and things like that. And some supplies, but then the the feedback was from Ukraine as well. They need protection. We don't provide weapons or ammunition, but we provide Kevlar vests, boots, drones, uh, tourniquets, night vision goggles, everything. And and then of course winter clothes. It turned out as we went through that first winter, 
And uh, the thinking there, and I hope I'm not getting too long-winded here, but um, the thinking is still the same, which is a lot of that stuff comes in through the normal channels of U.S. providing those kinds of things. But often it's kind of a bureaucracy. So if, if some person has boots and they're supposed to last a year or a year and a half, um, they wear out in four months. So, and then those people are told, well, you know, you, you have to wait. Well, that's, that's where I think our sources inside Ukraine are able to get the kinds of supplies that we can provide to where they're needed. Right. But again, why Ukraine? I, I grew up in Texas. I uh, was born in Memphis, Tennessee, but raised in Houston. Once I saw on the map, and that was the other thing that was interesting uh, before the war ever broke out, was Ukraine is as big as Texas. And I was also intrigued that it's, it has more people than Texas. Because Texas has, I think, 35 million people, and Ukraine has or had pre-war uh, 45 million people, which is more of the equivalent of California. It was just an intriguing feeling that the Ukrainian people that I'd read about and met very few at that time, now I've met many, many more, they just seemed to have uh, personalities that were kind of, uh, well, They could, some people have good senses of humor. There's a number of people that have stoic personalities, but all of them have determination, it seems like. I don't see the people that I've, I've met early determination that they can make a difference. That really looking into that spirit was also something that was an attraction to me. And then when I did get to Lviv, that really came out in spades. Sense of humor, defiance, the kinds of, you know, the thought that they are stronger. The more I learn about the history of Ukraine, the more impressed I am that it it's the kinds of people that, uh, deserve to have freedom, which they had, and they've lost several times, and this time around, they shouldn't lose it. This was your first time in Ukraine, right? In October yes. 2022. You know, like, when you meet some people from, especially like from U.S. that are supporting Ukraine, for Ukrainians, it looks like maybe they have some kind of families here or many friends here. That's why they want to help. But... You have never been to Ukraine. You, you don't have any relatives here, right? No roots from here and um, like no previous tight connections with Ukraine. Do you remember the day when the war started? Yes, February 24th. What did you feel when you saw the news? Um, I was I was stunned. It was kind of like uh, our 9-11, our September 11th in the in the following days, as I say, peeling away the onion, looking at the different layers, I was able to see and understand a similarity in what Stalin did in the 30s in Ukraine. Uh, and it was like, uh, I've also been a not a not a deep student, but a, a student of what Putin has been up to over the years. And of course, I was incredibly excited about Gorbachev and uh, and the and what looked to be the, I think it was called Glasnost, where we were, it looked like things had finally opened up and it was the end of the Soviet Union. So it seemed at that time like the world was really headed in the right direction. And that was in the early 90s. And uh, and then Putin, uh, Putin, of course, took charge. And now we've gone to 
he's taken it back to this madness that is uh, what Stalin was trying to do. It did. Stalin starved his own people, took all of, uh, starved the Ukrainians, I mean, as well as his own people, um, to to basically, <laughs> he, did, he didn't want to feed them, so why not just starve them to death? And Putin is built like that. Lives don't matter to him. It's a despicable happenstance that you would have a kind of chain of that kind of thinking. But I do know a couple of things. I've been able to have some conversations with ex-military uh, leaders in the U.S., the Hoover Institute. Uh, there's a four-star general, H.R. McMaster, uh, there. There's, uh, there's others like that. I also was around a young person who was involved in the Pentagon at a wedding that we went to in Jackson Hole, Wyoming in June. And to that particular person, he said the Pentagon, the Pentagon knew in October of 21, the precise date that Russia was going to attack Ukraine. And I think that I don't know what you do about that. I don't know how much got to the to you all, and and what do you what do you, how do you how do you stop something that hasn't really been exposed other than through kind of FBI CIA kinds of conversations? Do you put it on the front page of the newspapers? Probably not. I don't I don't know. Let's move forward and um, let's talk about you. You are helping Ukraine, and you you provided so much supplies. Do you know the approximate? number of the funds that you have already like donated or is this information like public information or can you share it yeah i can share it and it, it'll seem kind of small because but but again it's it's been a, about three and a half million dollars total and we have and we continue to grow it by having uh presentations and i will have the consul general of ukraine that's based in san francisco he represents the 12 Western uh, states. So catching him at the right time is good. He's a young guy and well-spoken. But the thing for me is there's zero overhead. We don't have anybody making salaries or everybody is a volunteer. The, so we're gathering stuff from around Europe or even the U.S., mostly coming through starting in Geneva, but everything or getting to Poland from uh, England or France, and then from there getting it into the right hands in Ukraine. Thank you for that. So approximately three and a half million dollars from your side. And that means that you are still donating, right? And you are still involved in the initiatives. Let's get back to where did you get your wealth? What were the reasons to form you as an entrepreneur? Can you share a little bit about your story? How have you become the entrepreneur, the businessman? I'm, thank you. I'm proud to, uh, have grown up the way I did. But my dad, I think just if he got a high school degree, uh, I'm not sure, but he but he did did enough, let's say a GES, which is probably a certificate, the equivalency of a high school degree. He ended up becoming a, a World War II pilot of B-24s. He met, my mother uh, was, was a worked in an x-ray an x-ray technician uh, they met my dad ended up becoming a great salesman my mother was a great mom to me and my brother and she also worked with my dad later for many years and they it was just a it was a great life and the world and the world was your oyster I grew up in Houston and I was born in Memphis raised in Houston and there 
I realized, or I was good in math. I ended up getting a little minor, little teeny little scholarship to Georgia Tech and went there to uh, get a mechanical engineering degree. My scholarship was like, I think, $700 a year. But then tuitions weren't much higher than that either back in those days. Um, and then I went to uh, worked at a Humble Oil, which is now Exxon, as a job out. Actually, I didn't really like that job. And uh, the dean of students at Georgia Tech, where I had been involved in student council and that sort of thing, I was in campus politics, call it. Uh, the dean of students really had a, he was a mentor to me, and he suggested if and when I wanted to go to, let's say, business school, he could probably uh, write the, a letter of endorsement that would get me into, say, Harvard or Stanford. And so a particular year, I did go up and look at Harvard in the spring, and there was black snow all over the ground, and I went, gee whiz, that's, that's not very inviting. And I looked on a map of where Stanford was on the Pacific Ocean, and I'd been to Southern California to visit like Disneyland and things like that that everybody wants to do. My dad would get two-week vacations. We'd often go to Southern California to this beach area where they had friends, and so I could fish, et cetera, go to Disneyland. So I said, gee whiz, if I go to Stanford, I can live at the beach and swim and body surf. But of course, Northern California is totally different. The water is a lot colder. And even though Stanford's only maybe 25 miles by crow fly, it's probably an hour, hour and a half drive to get, uh, it's a long way to go on windy roads over a mountain to get to, to Stanford. But anyway, I ended up getting an MBA there. While there, I met somebody talking about real estate and I knew that I wanted to get into real estate and I got a summer job between the two years in mortgage banking. So I met a lot of developers and also was able to see how deals were put together, what the pro formas would look like, putting together um, all the necessary information like how how is your business going to be successful? You have to look at the neighborhood and see how what is going to make your business prosper. And from there, I that summer job led me to knowing that I wanted to be in real estate. And so I was able, after I graduated, to actually work to start with as, as a broker, selling commercial real estate types of things like small apartments, buildings, and whatever. And then after a year or so of that, I knew that uh, I started developing some small little things called... Uh, storage units, mini storage, and then moved into my love became urban infill. So the kinds of buildings that you're, of course, you have such a beautiful city there, but the same in San Francisco, it's not nearly as old, but some of the old buildings that were underutilized, the concept, we call that infill. So the idea was that I became a person infatuated with going into areas where there were existing buildings and changing the use and, and really fixing them up. And uh, that's been fun. And also building new buildings now, uh, big apartment projects, et cetera. So I'm still very active, but have a lot of very smart young people that are so much smarter than I am. And they're the ones that, that are doing the work and uh, it's it's fun to be around them. Wow. You're still working, right? Yes, I'm probably spend uh, that, not only that, uh, another business is the car wash business, the express car wash business partner to start with in uh, 2007, 2008. And the general partner uh, made some 
mistakes. And I had also, beyond providing equity, I had asked, or he had asked, and I agreed to sign some personal guarantees for some construction loans and a working capital loan. And he botched things up. And so the Bank of America sent me uh, default notices, which means that uh, the general partner wasn't paying the interest and wasn't doing what he was supposed to. So I took over that company and my son works there now. Well, it started with five car washes and now we have 43 in mostly in Texas uh, and we will have a few in California. So that takes up time. And then finally, and I'm sorry being long-winded here, but we have, uh, I'm very involved in the Buck Institute for Research on Aging, which is something that every one of your listeners should look at that website because there's a lot of good information there, B-U-C-K. And then, of course, a lot of my time is spent on how to help Ukraine. What is your, like, looking back on all this businesses that you have established and uh, all the success, what would you advise young entrepreneurs how to become a successful entrepreneur? I mean, like maybe some personal features that helped you to become successful in the business. I think it is, well, there's maybe a couple of parts there to your question. First of all, one of the keys to whatever is the enjoyment of meeting other people and having the the energy to meet other people and continue to expand your your connections. Some people are, let's say, shy or they're already focused so well on what they want to do. That's fine. But I think for an entrepreneur, it's probably better to be able to, well, that's not even fair. I think it's, in my, my case, it was the ability to uh, meet people and see what they were doing. And, and certain people are interested only in finance, for instance. They're still very involved in real estate, but they're on the finance side. They want to, they will get the loans from banks or from uh, private equity companies or uh, other sources, and they help do that. And those, the, let's say those people are called mortgage bankers. And then there are these firms that are, are real estate firms where they've never built any of the building. They just acquire them. Maybe they do some modifications or change the plans. Then there's there's the person like me that's more interested in a particular microeconomic situation. By that I mean, sir, every every city. Let's say Lviv has maybe I don't know how many different neighborhoods. Lot maybe it's forty or maybe it's ten. But in areas like the U.S. or certainly in Northern California around the San Francisco Bay Area, there are literally hundreds of different kinds of neighborhoods. So. When you get to a particular neighborhood and you look at their micro economy and what is it that they may be missing? Uh, is there some is there some cluster of businesses that would be successful there, or or do they need more housing? Do they need apartments? Uh, do they need uh, townhomes or something for sale or or uh, different different kinds of fast food types of things? We don't don't do those kinds of things. Although with the car wash thing. We have partnered up with, and you you may have heard of Chick-fil-A, which is a very famous retail fast food restaurant, and it's very, very successful all over the U.S. So sometimes we've been able to, to find some location where both the Chick-fil-A would be good and our car wash would be good. And then on the other end of that spectrum, that's a very small. And then the latest project that we're doing is down in 
San Jose, and it's the 585-unit apartment project being built all at one time, and I was just down there last week, and we've topped it off, and uh, it's it's incredible how big it is. That's like a small city, but we're right on a rail line. It'd be like you having your transit in in uh, Lviv we've got uh, this we're right on a on a rail stop for a light rail system that's it's not used as nearly as frequently as the ones in Europe but it it's still it's going to be more helpful going forward it sounds huge I mean the projects that you're talking about is like how many people are involved in all your businesses right now do you know uh well no I mean I think Uh, well, first on on the people that I work with, I have two different groups of young people, and one of them is they're both about four people each, and that's who basically four to five people. And then my own staff, well, the car wash company again, there's four or five people there, but we have 500 employees totally in the car wash business. And on that big project that I was just describing, there's probably 350 people working there daily or at the height. Uh, and now I think it's going to be cut back. But the people that I deal with are small groups of of these, like I said earlier, younger people. And um, we are constantly strategizing and looking at difficult situations or specific uh, responses that we need to make. And the biggest thing going on right now is, and I'm sure it's, you probably don't notice it there, but it's the problem in Europe as well. And that's interest rates have gone up because of the COVID scare and the and kind of the worldwide, we don't call it a recession yet, but we had inflation that got very high because of COVID, because of not being able to deliver stuff where this The supply chain issues were very, very constricted over the last, well, since the start of COVID. And so that supply obstacle created just higher and higher prices. And now inflation has gotten very high and the U.S. has got to about 10%. And so then availability of the Federal Reserve to tighten interest rates and make them higher to try to bring a screeching halt to this. I think it's the same in in uh, Western Europe. Uh, they're they're dealing with the same thing, and I'm sure it impacts you as well because you all are really part of that economy. Yeah, sure. We we already feel it very strongly, uh, especially about the prices for for everything here, and of course because of the war. Um, so the first like rule from your side is to just keep meeting new people and always be curious what other people are doing, right? And like make partnerships with them? Well, it depends, sure, certainly. But just collecting information and and, uh, and logging it away, I try to keep a lot of notes. I dictate notes in the different places to save them. And then and then thinking. Thinking is a, is a fun thing to do. And often the thinking has to happen when you're solitary, when you're not around people and you're not You're not uh, engaged with a TV show or or some concert or whatever it is. So thinking takes some time, and that's often I say. Listen, the light bulb goes off in your head. And you go, aha! Mm-hmm. So you have a brainstorm, and you go, I've got an idea, and then then you start trying to take that idea and look at the pluses and minuses of it. And sometimes it takes quite a while to have to get the answer, and sometimes. That's where the risk taking, and that's kind of the fun part, 
is there's sometimes you go, I've got a gut instinct that this will work, but you can't quite prove it out. What is the main uh, the main advice how to keep good relationship with all the business partners that you that you have? Um, my my advice is to have they call it EQ emotional quotient. It's basically to read the room, read the read the squints of the eyes, read the types of smiles you get, to try to really understand if your audience is connecting with you. And for me, I try to break people down by trying to be humorous in my small way, whatever that is. Just try to make light of myself. And and I really truly do believe that I'm kind of just street smart. I, I don't I don't pin any of these anything that's happened to me on my education necessarily. I sometimes certainly happy that I have it, but I really think it's it's more about reading people, uh, which means being a listener and not just talking. So I hope I haven't done too much of that today. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's the great advice. Understand people and read people and try to to figure out like the, the the type of personalities they are is it's the huge work. As for me, do you remember the time when you felt that you earned enough money to feel yourself in a comfort zone or something like that? Maybe there was a, a point in your life, for example, when you earned first million of dollars or ten million, one hundred million. It's it is. I mean, I haven't thought about it. But I do remember a couple of things. I remember when I was a broker and I was living in an apartment. And uh, so I was very young and, of course, had that MBA from Stanford. A lot of people, that's so long ago that that was uh, 71 that I graduated. And so I was working. And I think even the best salaries back then were like $1,000 a month, except maybe for if you went into management consulting with some of the big firms or Wall Street with uh, Morgan Stanley or uh, Goldman Sachs, that kind of stuff. But there were people in accounting. And I remember going to a uh, like an auction uh, where they were these uh, antique furniture. And I was really, really excited about this particular chest. And I thought, God, that thing's really beautiful. Jeez. So I bought it. And when I got home and started doing my math, I realized I couldn't afford it. And it was like $350 or something. I went, oh my God, I gotta think. So from there, uh, I, I just, uh, yeah, I, I think you keep track any way you can. And then as uh, life rolls along, sometimes you find that if you have the right idea, but you don't have the money, then you find partners. You go around and talk to your friends and say, okay, I've got this idea. And you set up a limited partnership and you bring in people and so I, I did that with some people that I met, not so much my friends because they didn't have any money either, but then you start meeting people that, that are older than you and have successful businesses that here's my idea and I'd, I'd love for you to be a limited partner if, if, uh, if you think my business plan works. And so that, that started and then some, and then sometimes like in this big, well, the 370 unit project, uh, another one over in the East Bay, our institutional partner is uh, a life insurance company. So they're big sometimes, very big. But I think on the scale of, of a small is better to start. And then as you all get your economy back, you'll find that there'll be a lot, I think there'll be a lot of investors that want to go into 
in the Ukraine. I continually talk about, I think people will want to set up shop in Ukraine for all sorts of businesses because, well, it's beautiful. I think that that'll be interesting. When it was so fascinating, was here and I drove her through Sausalito and some of the other areas in Marin County. And when I said, look up in the hills of Sausalito, I said, it's really a Mediterranean look. And she said, yes, I, we have views like that in Crimea. And I went, my God, that's really incredible. And so really it made me think that's why you all deserve to get Crimea back and the freedom of the Black Sea. It's just got to be, got to be that way. Yeah, we, but, uh, we truly hope for that. The final question, because we're, we're running out of time. Um, what do you want to, to tell to Ukrainian people right now? I would tell them that there are many passionate people like myself that uh, in, in the U.S. And I think Western Europe is solidly in your camp. The U.S. in general will stay very involved and I hope will put up more, get more to you faster. But everything has been shut down for so long here, making munitions, making planes. Now we have to do that and we should have been doing that all along. But I think uh, the world as I see it is that mass vast majority of americans are incredibly supportive of ukraine thank you for your support and um i think with with such people with such supporters uh, as you bill we will you will win thank you, you will